Let's turn in our Bibles here, please, today to the book of Hebrews. Here we are today in Hebrews chapter 6. So we are making progress, aren't we? Hebrews chapter 6. We began verse 1 of chapter 6 last week, but we can, we can say we're starting a new chapter today, if it makes me feel better at least. Well, beloved, since we know this is God's word, let us stand for the reading of it and um, earnestly pray that God will open our eyes and our hearts to understand it. Here's what the word of God says that we're looking at today. In verse 1, Therefore, leaving the elementary teachings about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instructions about washings and laying on of hands and of the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you now that you are the one who enables us to do everything in our lives that is related to our walk with you, to know you and to live as your people. We know it is only by your spirit. And so we pray now that you will bless us as we consider these scriptures and you will open our hearts and minds to understand them properly. May you bless the meditations of my heart on this passage and use it in each one of our hearts, in my, my heart as well, uh, to show us how we are to continue to be your people, strong in the Lord. We pray now in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all. Please be seated. Here in verse 1 of this chapter, the apostle is saying, let us leave the basic principles of, that all of us, who have come into the church have already heard and come to understand and even put into practice such things as the doctrine of salvation and redemption. Not that those things aren't vitally important. They are vitally important. But he is then saying, let us now go on to maturity. Let us go on into a mature experience and relationship with our God. Let us develop in our walk with our Lord into a mature believer. Basically, I hear him saying here, let us grow up in the Christian faith. Beloved, God is infinite, and he has revealed a great deal about himself to us and about what it means for us to be his people and how we are to be his people God has not revealed everything there is about himself to us. It would be impossible for God to reveal. He is infinite. He could not reveal everything. But my friends, he has revealed to us all that he knows we need to know. Everything that we possibly need, but then also even enough to keep us all learning for the rest of our lives. Okay, one of my wife's favorite scriptures, and you've probably heard me mention this before, is, Jerem is uh, Deuteronomy 29, 29. And you see it there on your sermon helps. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, 
that we may observe all the words of the law. So in that scripture, it reminds us that there are so many things that, we, that God has not revealed about himself to us or revealed in period to us. But it tells us that he has revealed many things to us. And it is all so that we can be his children. Do you notice it all belongs to us so that we can observe and do all of his will. Follow his commands as it says, observe all the words of the law. So he has given everything that we need to know. And did you notice in that scripture, it doesn't just say he has given it to us, but who else is included there? To our children too, doesn't it? It boils down to this, beloved. He gives us all we need so that we can glorify him with our lives. It reminds me of the second question of our catechism. Would you look there and, and read that with me? little review of the catechism here. What rule hath God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him? The word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify God. So we have everything that we will ever need in what God has revealed to us. But now, beloved, listen, we must put forth the effort to learn it and to know it and to grow in it. We must put forth the effort. It takes energy, doesn't it? I found the experience of the pastor and theologian who wrote a commentary that I often refer to. It's called the Smith Bible Commentary. And I, I found his experience uh, kind of applicable to what we're talking about in leaving the elementary things and maturing in Christ, going on to, to mature in Christ. And look what his, uh, his, he said here about his life. He said, for years in my ministry, I sought to be a preacher. I was a preacher and I sought to be an evangelist. Just about every message that I preached was evangelistic because within the denomination where I was serving, evangelism was the big thing. First thing on my report, I had to put how many people were saved. And if you don't have some in that box, then they're not going to look good to the bishop. I'm very grateful that I don't have to, re to fill out a report of such a thing as that. So he says, I sought to be an evangelist. I preached the gospel, but I came to the realization after years of frustration that what the converted need is teaching. God has called me to be a teacher. As I preached, the church never developed. It never matured. The people didn't mature. I kept them in a state of spiritual arrested development. All they knew was the doctrine of salvation. They knew it well. They knew that they had to be born again. They knew they had to repent from their sins. They knew that they had to be baptized because that is all that they ever heard. And we never took them beyond that state of spiritual infancy until we began to teach the word of God. Leaving these first principles, the doctrine of Christ, going on into the full maturity, not going back over and over again the foundations of faith, but building on that foundation the whole knowledge of God through the word. I just thought that was applicable to uh, what we are told to do here in this first verse. Leaving the elementary teachings about Christ, let us press on 
to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance and dead works, from dead works and of faith toward God. So the apostle now said this in verse 1. He says, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ. Remember last week I showed you that in the Tyndale Bible, it said it this way, let us leave the doctrine pertaining to the beginning of a Christian man. What you learn in the beginning, okay? Uh, another old Bible, one, these are some of the oldest uh, English translations, the Tyndale and the Coverdale said it this way, let us leave the doctrine pertaining to the beginning of the Christian life, okay? And then the apostle began to outline what the elementary things are of the Christian life. The first two things that he mentions here in verse 1 are repentance and faith. Every believer should understand that to be a Christian, they must have a foundation of repentance and faith. They have to understand that. This is the biblical response that a believer must have when they hear the gospel. This is what the Bible tells us we're to do about it when we hear the gospel. We repent and we believe. Jesus showed us that this is the case in his very first words in the gospel of Mark. Look at Mark 1. Now after John was taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And now he says, here's what you need to do about it. Repent and believe in the gospel. I pretty much covered repentance and faith last week, but just to remind ourselves of a few things, again, notice there in verse 6 that the apostle says, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, is how he put it there. This would be from works, and this would be from activities and things that you have done that cause death, cause spiritual death, okay? Again, I remind you, the apostle may have been talking about two things. There are two things that, uh, that these Hebrews could have done that would have led to dead works, spiritual death, okay? First, he might have been referring to those actions and those activities that were just sinful in their nature. They were breaking of God's laws, his moral laws, you know? We may call them sins of the flesh, so we have to repent of those sins of the flesh. And then he also may have meant those things which were related to Judaism that had no spiritual life and the believers there in the church needed to discontinue since they're Christians. Many of the things that, that they raised, were raised up in in Judaism that were basically dead works. And that's why I think he says it here, the, the repentance from dead works. When a Jew converted to Christianity, they had to repent of relying on those dead and hollow forms that were part of Judaism, okay? I think it is very possible, and let me just say it's very probable that this is what the author had in mind since he is writing here to the Hebrews who grew up all their lives with the old covenant types and shadows 
and that now had been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. They'd grown up with these things. Look what Albert Barnes said on this point. The quotes there at the bottom of that first side, he said, when formalists are converted, one of the first and the main exercises of their minds in conversion consists in deep and genuine sorrow for their dependence on those forms. So he's talking about coming from another faith, basically. And they have established ways in those, whatever faith it is that they're coming from. And they have to repent of those things. He says, he says uh, one of the first and main exercises of their mind in conversion consists in deep and genuine sorrow for their dependence on those forms. Religion is life, and irreligion is a state of spiritual death, whether it be in open transgression or in false and hollow forms of religion. The apostle has here stated what is the first element of the Christian religion. It consists in genuine sorrow for sin and a purpose to turn from it. Think of the words of John the Baptist when he first began his ministry preparing the way for Jesus. When he said in John, excuse me, in Matthew 3, look, now in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, you know, you and I might think when he said repent, what he meant is repent of whatever evils you've been doing, the things that you should not have been have been doing. But let's remember when Jesus spoke those words, he was speaking to a bunch of Hebrews, wasn't he? Jewish people. That's who he's speaking to. Yes, they, they had all kinds of sins in their lives that they had to repent of too. But I think that when he told them this, that they needed to repent here, I think it was very, very possible that he also meant repent of those faults uh, forms that you the, repent of the false and hollow forms of your religion of Judaism and the re reason was because the kingdom of heaven was on the verge of coming into this world they would have to repent of relying on many of those things that they thought and they practiced in Judaism some of them God had prescribed for them before Christ but many of them the Pharisees had invented, and the church had allowed, I don't know, there was like 614 extra-biblical laws that they had to follow. And the second basic principle now of the Christian faith, look again at verse 6, or excuse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 6, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. The second basic principle of a Christian, of the Christian life, is faith, isn't it? The author here is speaking of faith in Jesus Christ, okay? Faith in Jesus Christ is the second element of the Christian religion. In Acts, we read this, in Acts chapter 20, look, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God, and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice here in verse 1, the author says, and faith toward God. You see that? Notice that? Is that how your Bible puts it? And, and a faith toward God. 
Now, when we say faith toward God, we're really not talking about anything different than saying also faith in Jesus Christ. They are one, aren't they? It is faith in the teachings of Jesus Christ who makes the Father known to us. That's what he does. And it is faith in all of the scriptures. Faith that there is only one God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he who believes in the true God believes in the true God as the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And as the one who is the author of the plan of salvation, you see, and who is the savior of the lost souls, and who is the changer of hearts, the one who changes hearts and wills. No one can believe in the true God who does not believe in the Savior, Jesus Christ. As Jesus said there in John 5, 23, look there, in order that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father, he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father, who, nor does he honor the Father who sent him. A Christian understands and believes that there is no other God. My friends, all those who think that they worship God, and there's people all over the world that think they worship God, but all those who think that they worship God and yet their God is different from the God who has revealed himself in the Holy Bible, my friends, and in Jesus Christ, they worship nothing but an idol. But Christians believe in God as he has revealed himself as the true God, the author of the great plan of salvation and the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Now, the author goes on in verse 2. He says this, of instructions. He's talking about the foundation, uh, not laying again a foundation. Now he says, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and of the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Here, the first thing the author speaks of is instruction about washings. Some versions, I don't know if any of you all have one of those here, but some versions use the word baptisms, instructions about baptisms, because this is basically what the word is. It's not the exact word for baptism, but it's related to it. And you notice that the word is in the plural, so it's right for it to say instructions about washings here. And it, again, it's a little bit different from the word for baptism. I keep thinking that the author is, is particularly speaking here about the Jewish customs, washings that the Jews practiced. And I think it was the case that the Hebrews, even though they were in the Christian church, were still practicing and putting their faith in those same things that they did as Jews, okay? The Jews had many teachings. They had many traditions that involved various kinds of washings, and they called them baptisms, okay? The word baptism isn't new. It wasn't new to the Jews. No, sir. It was very common to them. Let's look, with, uh, look together at Mark, the Gospel of Mark and chapter 7. And here we're going to begin reading in verse 1. And um, I'll let you get there for a moment. 
Mark chapter 7 and verse 1. And it says here, The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but they eat their bread with impure hands? And as he said to them, and he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines and precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, You are experts at setting aside the command of God in order to keep your traditions. So you see all these things that they were practicing and that they were doing. So perhaps it was the case that those Hebrews that now had come into the Christian church still held to those traditions. And the problem is they put their faith in them. They saw them as a spiritual value. Let me say it that way. They basically said, we believed in Jesus Christ, but we still do all these other things that we've always done before because they help us be closer to God. Okay? Scholars believe it was the case that the Jews uh, did many things kind of that were bap- washings. Okay? They, they baptized proselytes who came into Judaism. They would had a, a water, a washing of water for a person who was not a Jew that came into the, to the Jewish church, okay? And then there were washings that the, washings that the Jews practiced, and the Le- Levites practiced all kinds of washings uh, before they made their sacrifices and all these things. And as we saw in Mark, there were ceremonial washings before eating that the Jews faithfully practiced. And then it is also very possible that they had a lot of confusion, the church there, about Christian baptism, okay? For the new believer, after the foundation of repentance and faith comes instruction about being baptized. This is what we do as God's people. Jesus, we do it because Jesus said to do it. He said, go therefore and make disciples and then baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So making disciples is teaching them all the the basic elementary things, faith and repentance, and then teaching them about baptism. Young, Young Christians must be taught what their baptism means because otherwise it is just a superstitious thing. You know, I I see that has happened in the church through, in in many instances, where people don't have a clue what it means, but they say, well, this is the thing you got to do, you know, let's let's go and be baptized. And 
that everything that God gives us, the word and the sacraments, must be joined with faith. Faith in understanding and putting our trust in what it represents. Okay? As many of you who have joined the church know, or many of you who are preparing to join the church know, we spend a, quite a lot of time talking about baptism, don't we? Because there is much for us to understand. And you know what? Uh, as old as I am, I still learn new things about what baptism helps me appreciate uh, about my walk with God, okay? And you will too. Again, the author used a word here for baptism which meant washings, and he used it in the plural. And beloved, it was the case that there were several washings in the New Testament that could have crept into the church that we are talking about here now in Hebrews. Uh, this church, I probably think it was in Jerusalem. So there were some, several washings in the New Testament. There was the baptism of John that we see was being practiced even 25 years after John's death by some uh, men and, believe, and people in, in uh, Ephesus. 25 af years after John had died, people were still practicing the baptism of John, you see. They had John's baptism for repentance of their sins, but they didn't know anything about Jesus' baptism in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, which was different. And in the first century church, there were questions of how many times, can't you imagine in the first century church, they didn't have everything figured out yet. They were still putting a lot of stuff together. They didn't know how many times was it necessary for a person to be baptized. Perhaps this is why it was necessary for the writers of the Nicene Creed in about 325 years uh, BC to, or AD after Christ to say, we believe in one baptism for the remission of sins. Remember saying that in the Nicene Creed? The, Hundreds of times you've probably said the Nicene Creed. And we believe in one baptism for the remission of sins. Well, that was there to help the believers understand that that's, that's all we have that we need to do. A Christian baptism must be done with water in the name of the Holy Trinity, my friends. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there are a lot of other truths about baptism that can be taught to the young Christian how we are to be baptized, the mode of baptism, okay? Who is to be baptized? What is required for those who are to be baptized? Of course, faith is required and repentance are required of a person who is old enough to understand. And then there is much to be taught about the baptism of covenant children. That's a whole nother thing to learn about. And since the Hebrew Christians made so much of those various baptisms and since they grew up with the Jewish practices and understanding of all these washings, it was important that the true doctrine of baptism would be taught as one of the elementary things, the elementary principles of the Christian faith so that they might not, again, carry on with things that were dead works, no longer had value spiritual value, okay? It's always a good idea to wash your hands after you 
come home from the market. Or to wash your hands before you eat. It's always a good thing. But that's not because of spiritual value to us. So there is much for us to learn. Now the apostle goes on in verse 2. He says, of instructions about washings and then of laying on of hands. Well, this is the fourth basic element that he would call a basic doctrine of the church that they had to teach in those days. In the church today, at least in our church, laying on of hands is not very common except in the ordination of an officer, elders and deacons. And you know why we do that? It's because this is the picture that we find in Scripture. If you like, you could turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 14. And, or just listen, it says, Paul is talking to young Timothy, who is a young pastor here. He says, I do not neglect the spiritual gifts, do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance and with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. And so we have the scriptural basis for this, the scriptural warrant for this, don't we? But apparently, laying on of hands received a lot of attention in the first century church, probably because laying on of hands was very common again in Judaism. In Judaism, when a blessing was imparted on someone, uh, it was signified by the laying on of hands. Okay, that's kind of normal, the normal thing. It was done when a priest prayed for a person. And it was used when a person offered sacrifices. Remember this, the person bringing the sacrifice laid their hands on the head of that sacrifice, that animal to be sacrificed. And they confessed their sins. Uh, and the idea of it was it signified transferring their sins to that sacrifice that was now going to die for their sins. Okay. So it was done for many things in the Old Testament. And laying on of hands was also done by Jesus and the apostles. Okay? There were instances where Jesus or his apostles laid hands on individuals as they healed them. Or when Jesus was casting out demons. We could go to different scriptures and look at that. And then remember when Jesus laid his hands on the children and he blessed them. Look at your, your uh, sermon help there at Matthew 19. And remember, and then some children were brought to him so that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, let the children alone and do not hinder them from coming to me. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And after laying his hands on them, he departed from there. Jesus was able to lay his hands on those children and bless them. And part of the reason he could do that is because he was Jesus. He's God, okay? In the book of Acts, we see the action of laying on of hands. And there, every time I know of in the book of Acts, when we see the laying on of hands, it resulted in the, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Peter and John visited the believers in Samaria and they placed their hands on them and it was by that 
that those believers received the Holy Spirit. It, it, was, it was a real thing there in the book of Acts. When Ananias put his hands on Saul, remember in that case, Saul received both his sight and we're told the Holy Spirit at the same time. Uh, in Ephesus, Paul laid his hands on some of John the Baptist's disciples and they received the Holy Spirit. Other instances of the practice of laying on of hands was seen in the ordination service, again, as I kind of pointed out earlier, of pastors and elders and missionaries. Missionaries, Paul and Barnabas, were to be sent out, and they laid their hands on them. They, they, the uh, the pa other pastors did. Let us remember, beloved, that in the early church with the original apostles, let me emphasize that, with the original apostles, laying on of hands was definitely connected with the giving of the Holy Spirit. That may have been because the apostles were endowed with the power of imparting the influence of the Holy Spirit in a miraculous and let's say an extraordinary way. You know, the apostles did many extraordinary things that are not repeated today. Okay? There were extraordinary things because it was an extraordinary time. It is the case that almost every time we see the apostles laid their hands on an individual or a group of individuals, the Spirit of God was imparted in an extraordinary way. So, beloved, it was one of those things, I think, uh, in the early church that God used to validate the ministry of his apostles. Okay. Though today in the church we use laying on of hands in special situations, we certainly don't use it as Jesus and the apostles did because Jesus did not command us to do that. I know of nowhere where Jesus commanded us to do that. Jesus, of course, commanded the, the uh, Lord's Supper, and he commanded baptism. And that's where we end. That's where we draw the line. We don't go any further. He did not command the laying on of hands to convey the Spirit. No, my friends. So we cannot say that anyone today, any person today, any officer of the church today, is entrusted by God with the power of imparting the Holy Spirit in the way that Jesus did and the apostles did. Okay? The problem that can happen in the church is that that symbol can be misused and it can be abused. And it has been misused and abused. When people think that they're specially endowed. They're a special prophet of God, and they have this ability to do something that most people don't have the ability to do. So it can be misused and abused. However, I do think it can be used in the church if it is done symbolically without suggesting an immediate benefit of God's blessing or of the unquestionable pouring out of God's Spirit just because a man laid his hands on them, okay? I found it interesting from John Calvin that laying on of hands was used in the church of his day 
for the admission of children into the church. You know, the, what we call the sealing ordinances of the church. That means when they become communing members uh, of the church. In the early church, there were two types of what were called catechumies. Now, you all know what catechism is. It's, it means to teach. Well, a catechumy was one who was being taught. And when people came into the church, they were called a catechumy because they were students. They were learners. That's all it meant. And so most of the people that were coming into the church were coming. They were formerly heathens who God saved. He gave them salvation and, and uh, faith in Jesus Christ. And when they came into the church, they had to prepare to be members of the church, and they had to be taught. They had to be catechized, okay? They were taught the doctrines of the faith, the ABCs, if you will. And then after making a profession of, the faith, of their faith, they were baptized, okay? And their baptism was in part, and our baptism today, too, is in part a sign and seal that God's Spirit has been poured out upon that person. It doesn't happen at the act of baptism. Okay, we're not saying that. But it's a picture of God's Spirit being poured out upon us. If we have been baptized, we can look back at our baptism and say that was a picture of the fact that God's Spirit was poured out upon me. Okay? Some churches actually baptize by uh, pouring water from a pitcher onto the head of those who are to be baptized because they are symbolically just wanting to remind people that your baptism is a picture of the Spirit of God having been poured upon you. So for adults that were coming into the church, they were first taught and uh, catechized and then they were baptized. But in the case of covenant children now, they were, as John Calvin said, look at this quote that John Calvin has there. Speaking of covenant children, they were adopted from the womb and belonged to the body of the church. Now, he meant by that the visible church. They belonged to the body of the church by right of the promise and were baptized in infancy. But after the time of infancy, they, having been entrusted in the faith, instructed in the faith, presented themselves as catechumes, which as to them took place after baptism, but another symbol was then added, the laying on of hands. So I found it interesting that that was the practice in John Calvin's day, right? In our church, we teach our covenant children. You parents teach your children the basic doctrines of the Christian faith, and when the day comes that they desire to become a communion member of the church, they're already a member. We see all covenant children as members of the church. Um, but when the day comes that they want to become a communion member of the church, where they're going to be able to partake of the Lord's Supper, they do so by entering into a covenant with, with Christ and his church. They publicly profess with their lips and demonstrate that they have believed in their heart you see, that they believe in Jesus Christ. And then we pray for them. 
Um, we've never used in our church a laying on of hands in that process. I suppose they did in Calvin's day, so you could, but we've just never done that. So this practice of laying on of hands had its beginning at least in the Christian church. It had, it, had an early beginning in the Jewish church, but then in the Christian church, it had its beginning with the apostles, with Jesus and the apostles, but most of its uses in the early church were extraordinary, meant for the early church. That's what I mean by that word. They were things that God used in and for the early church, but were not intended to continue after that. So apparently there in the Christian church in Jerusalem, they received instruction about what the laying on of hands meant and what it didn't mean. Okay, but now, listen, they needed to press on to learn the wealth of things that God has made known about himself and that they need to learn, okay? Well, my friends, we will think about those last two things that he mentions he, in verse 2 of instruction about washings and laying on of hands of the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment will We'll think about those things next time. I think all of this uh, shows us that the church hasn't changed over the centuries. You know, people haven't changed. We all still need to learn the exact same elementary um, principles of the Christian faith. We all must learn about repentance and faith, and we must repent of those ways that we used, the ways that we used to think and the things that we used to do that were not according to God's ways, right? And we have to let go of anything that does not come from the word of God. The teachings of men, like we read about Jesus said, you hold to the teachings of men. We have to let go of those things. Or if a person comes into the Christian church who has been uh, in a, in a different religion, a, a false religion, he has to let those things go, you see. We have to be like Paul who said in 1 Corinthians, see it on your sermon helps, the last thing, for indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called both Jew and Greek, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And in verse 30, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And then he says in chapter two, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So there's a lot of things that we have to let go of, to get rid of, and to say, I'm only going to hold to Christ and his word, what he teaches in his word. And beloved, we will be able to do these things just as the Hebrews were able to do these things, as it says in verse 3 here, and this we will do if God permits. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you now that we are just being reminded of 
what it means to be your people, to put aside the things that we used to believe, things that we used to hold to, that had nothing to do with what you have shown us in your holy word and have not, had nothing to do with Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to put those things away. And, uh, Lord, that then we would press on to grow in our faith in you. So, Father, we pray for your enabling spirit. And even as we read here, we will do this if you permit. And so we pray that you will help us to do these things as, as uh, the church today as we are the part of the church, your church today. So we give you thanks, Lord, and pray now in Jesus' name. Amen.